Welcome to episode 368 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Uh, so this is, in some ways, the end. Not the end of the podcast, but you and I, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, embarked on this journey this incredible, unprecedented, almost impossible task of saying, what if we just started recording this series on theology and we saw, we just figured out how long it took us and we just take it topic by topic and week by week. And believe it or not, this is the end of that journey. I know it's bittersweet. It is. It's great. I, I hope that there are many that have joined us all along the way, or maybe you found yourself in the middle of it or you're knee deep in it and welcome. It's super cool that you're hanging out with us. And I, I can't even remember like what episode technically we started this. Have we actually confirmed that by any chance? Uh, if I had been, you know, if I was like a, a real podcaster, I would have looked this up. Uh, so maybe if you like, real can stall for a little while, I can figure out, I mean, I, I feel like it's out, it's over a hundred episodes. So we've been going for, at sure. for at least two full years worth of episodes just going through systematic theology, like this this series we're calling Fundamentals, but like this has just been the podcast. I mean, there was little breaks here right. and there. We'd have like we're at the beach or over Christmas time or whatever. We'd do something else, but yeah, it's been a it's been a long run. I'll have to I'll have to look it up and actually figure out like what episode it was when we started. So, in a strange way, it's funny to say we've arrived at the eschaton if if one can at least in the temporal space here. And so we're wrapping up this series on this particular episode. And next week, who knows what will happen? And that's why you ought to make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast and wherever you like to receive your feeds. But we've been going through this succession, this accumulation where the scriptures teach that believers are raised from the dead and that we'll have physical bodies forever, that the resurrected bodies can't exist without a place. And so that leads us to this understanding and this conversation of the fact that there will be a new heaven and new earth, all of which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But of course, before we get there, it doesn't matter what episode it is. It doesn't matter what series it is. We've got to affirm and we've got to deny. So what are you affirming with on this episode? So this is a, it's actually a two-part video on YouTube by a guy named Ivan Miranda. And the title of the video is Building a Marble Clock. So what okay. this guy did is he, seen this. Yes. he created this this clock. And what it is, it, it's not like there are different ways you could do a marble clock like that right. are relatively straightforward. But he created like a digital face clock, right? So right. like the typical eight, like seven cell, eight cell clock face that you're, we're used to on a digital clock. And he created a mechanism where the face is created with black and white marbles and the marbles slide out, like the entire face slides right. out each minute. So he had to create this whole mechanism. So it's the videos are relatively long. I mean, the, the two-part video is probably about 30 minutes total, but it's just fascinating how some people's brains work. Like I couldn't even, if you if you asked me to make a marble clock, I could not even conceptualize how to do that in any reasonable way, let alone actually build it in a way that it works. 
So this dude just just came up with it out of nowhere, and he managed to make it, and it's it's pretty sweet to see. So check it out. Um, it's called Building a Marble Clock Part 1 and Part 2 is uh, what you can look them up on on uh, YouTube. Otherwise, the, the channel is Ivan Miranda, and you can find it there as well. But it's it's just cool to see. Like It's just really, really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty there's impressive. something about the way God has created the world where like these kinds of things are possible. And it's just really, yeah. it's really interesting to see different people sort of tap into common grace, uh, into common grace insights to create these really amazing, beautiful things that just work in these really cool ways. Yes, I totally agree. Sorry for getting like super excited there. It took me a second to realize what you're saying. And then I was like, I've seen that. And it, I, my excitement was because it is awesome. Yeah, like totally. in the truest sense of the word, the idea that like, and this is what like, I think one of the great strengths of the YouTube is like the showcasing of people who have a turn of mind for like yeah. engineering and algorithm and mathematics to bring to bear like practical problems and to solve them in such creative ways that fill you with awe. Which in some ways, of course, just leads us back to doxology of the creator who is over all of these things generally. Yeah. So I'm with you. This is where like YouTube has like a great strength where like you, you drop into it and you find yourself watching and finding intrigue and things that like generally if somebody said to you like, hey, I think you should watch this thing. You'd be like, yeah, I'm all set. Yeah. I'm totally cool. like, so it's like, I want to like, here's the thing. I want to recommend a video to you. That's like somebody, some dude like building a clock. You'd be like, yeah. I'm totally fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it's like worth the time because again, like the intrigue of this, the problem solving is so incredible. And then when you see it happen and all the work that went into it, something like it's so simple that we take for granted, like the changing of numbers or like to use physical properties and mathematics in such a way in time itself yeah. to try to conceive of a way of capturing all this stuff together in like consummate harmony is absolutely fantastic. And then the thing that it gets delivered to you, like kind of free of charge, via youtube for the most part yeah incredible yeah yeah and it's cool too because this guy's really kind of funny and engaging like it's cool when you see someone who like there are a lot of people who could put together this kind of thing and could video like video it and put it on youtube but for someone who can has the engineering mind and the mathematical mind like the technical mind to do this but then right. also is funny and engaging and put it can put the video together in a way that keeps your attention for 30 minutes across these two videos, just watching this guy build a clock and talk about the different engineering problems that he's facing doing it. It's just a cool, it's a cool video. It's a cool experience. There was also a guy I saw, I don't have it in front of me, but who made these cool kinetic wall sculptures where like they would, it was like, like overlaid pieces of wood and they would turn different directions. It would create these really intricate, um, intricate, like patterns as the two pieces spun in, in opposite directions. There's just a lot of really cool stuff like that available on YouTube. Yeah. It's awesome. Right. Like I, so much of my entertainment actually comes from YouTube because I think there are these like amazing things to watch that stimulate the mind and kind of come alongside and encourage your curiosity. So I'm totally with you. That's super pumped. Like who would imagine that at this point in the podcast, we would talk about somebody making a clock and how amazing that is. Yeah. All the listeners are like, this is not surprising. guys." <laughs> you say that like it's unexpected and it's totally, totally on brand for you guys to geek out yeah, about somebody making a clock. Fair enough. Listen, you're into 368 hours of Tony and I talk at least. Yeah. At least doesn't include the bonus episodes and yeah. all the times we went over and said, this is free and we can do what we want. So we're going to go <laughs> over an hour. 
Yeah, just just a quick update since I, you've stalled enough for me to figure it out. We actually started this systematic theology series on episode 258 on September 30th of 2021. So yeah, we are uh, now 110 episodes with yeah, uh, plus or minus, right? There's a margin of error there. But 110 episodes and two two years and two months into this series, like that's pretty epic. I mean that that's that's pretty. Uh, I don't know if if I don't know how to say this. It it that's a it's a feat. So thank you for everybody who's joined along with us. Like we we don't make this show just for us. Um, there's been lots of encouragement along the way. But yeah, that's a lot of episodes. It is. That's a lot of conversation. That's a lot of talk about theology. And it's a great reminder that, of course, like in this space, in this temporal realm, we have like these discrete intervals and we've just cataloged it here before you. But to spend all of eternity, which is something that we're going to talk about on yeah. this episode, enjoying God, learning of God, appreciating him and having a relationship with him forever. And in that space, we will never be bored. There'll always be something to learn. That God is uncharted. We'll never find the edges of him. There'll be no margins that we can fully explore is just a task and a conception that's absolutely mind-boggling, even as we consider the fact that we've spent over 100 episodes talking about the In other words, like, that's just like the, this is like so cliche and like so underwhelming. Like it's just the tip of the iceberg in this case, but it's it's absolutely true. Yeah, for sure. So let's, let's move on to your affirmation, Jesse. What are you affirming today? I'm going to do double-barreled affirmations. I'm just going to keep positive today. And they're both super strange. And at this point, because it's 368, we're all friends. We're all siblings in Christ. I'm just going to let everybody into like these increasing levels. Like, I think we talk about this, like, let's let people in behind the curtain. And we talk about how we have, you know, different things that are unique to how you and I interact and how we prepare for the podcast or we don't prepare for the podcast. And we just talk extemporaneously. And then there's like other levels that might border on awkward, and I'm just about to go there. So <laughs> I think you're, you already know where this is going. So you and I, as we're setting up a time to like literally and physically record, you know, we have a date in mind, and then we kind of play with the margins of when that specific time will be on that day. So you texted me, we were interacting with each other and said, okay, we're going to make it happen today. And um, you said, all right, I'm ready to go. I was in like five minutes. So I just want all the listeners to hear. What was it that I texted you back when you said, I'm ready, I'm ready to on. go? I want to get the exact phrasing here. <laughs> Hold on. I want to I want to represent you faithfully. Again, this. Uh, this is vulnerability, loved ones. I'm letting you in. <laughs> he says, quote, okay, let me pivot. I'm in the tub. <laughs> End quote. So, so here's the first affirmation. And I think this is like, undervalued both my affirmations are like in bull markets or excuse me in bear markets and that is the tub is a great place to be like i think dudes in tubs is you know kind of like undervalued because it feels like vulnerable and weird but i w- had the opportunity to take like just a nice soak in epsom salt and I, it's just incredible like all oh my days like it's just incredible experience so the first affirmation is embrace the tub loved ones like there is a time like this is just straight proverbial there is a time and a place for the tub i I don't don't know like do you have feelings about the tub uh i feel like i feel like i would probably enjoy a nice bath but i just don't have time the last time i took a bath was uh i was like violently ill and was so like 
chilled oh, and wow. I felt so gross. I just got in the tub and like just laid there and like it didn't really help. But that was the last time. It was probably two years ago that I took a like a bath. Well, that changes like the whole. I mean, I don't normally take like a, a lot of baths, but I'm telling you, like especially if you you've been exercising, you've been yeah, working, you've been out in the yard, like. Epsom salts like an actual soak. What a blessing from God. And this is like a water hermeneutic right here. And I don't want to get into it to to great a degree, but it's just a blessing. So I guess I'm, I'm the affirmation is encouraging people to maybe explore the tub, lean into the tub in a way that you might be like, listen, I've done this in a while, or maybe I'm not a tub person. You are a tub person. How do I know that? Because God has made you. And so by virtue of that fact, the tub is your friend. So that's all I got to say. All right. We got to move on. I think (laughs) it's going to get more weird than it actually already is. Yeah. What are you, do you have a denial? Well, I'm going to rephrase my denial to be an affirmation to stay on this positive train. (laughs) I do want the listener to know that my response to Jesse saying, I got to pivot. I'm in the tub was I told him to record the podcast from the tub. He did not do that, but that was my, that was my directive. I don't know how that would have worked when I'm a waterproof laptop. Um, I'm going to pivot my denial into an affirmation. I was going to deny people being stupid in the snow, but I'm going to affirm safe driving in the snow. So we had our first uh, appreciable snow of the season here in New Hampshire this week, and it never fails, never, ever fails on the first snow of the season that on my way to work that morning, I saw not one, not two, but three large four-wheel drive trucks that were off the road. And what it tells me, and this is not a new thing, anyone who's lived in a state where there is a snow season and a first snow uh, understands that there are going to be those people that think that their big vehicle can compensate for their terrible driving, and it just is not the case, right? So I'm affirming safe snow driving, go slow, arrive alive. Uh, it's not that hard to drive in the snow, especially if you have a decent vehicle. You just have to take your time and be careful. You're right. But it does take a little bit of like forethought. And sometimes it actually makes sense if you can, uh, especially if you have a new vehicle that you haven't driven in the snow, to go out in the snow when the roads are empty and figure out how your vehicle handles in the snow. Because it's just like anything. You have to practice. You have to understand. And knowing how it feels when your vehicle starts to slide and knowing how to turn into a slide or when to turn out of a slide. Those are not things that you want to have to figure out as you're sliding on the road. You want to kind of understand those things ahead of time, but yeah, just be safe out there folks. Like I don't understand it. These weren't, and the people standing next to these trucks that were in the ditches were not like, like 16 year old guys who had never driven in the snow before. These were people who looked like they were probably in their late thirties or forties that should probably have many first snows under their belt. And for whatever reason, everybody just seems to forget how to drive in the snow until we get at least into the third or fourth snow. Then people start to figure it out. Yeah. I'm going to say like, this is can we just cut to Luther for a second? And for me to make this really strange, I'm going to build this really strange bridge between theology of, you know, like the cross and theology of glory. The theology of glory in the snow is I got a big vehicle with giant tires. Yeah. And I can make my way. And the theology of cross says I'll humble myself <laughs> and be careful and drive like particularly and assiduously and yeah. slowly. And to, to my estimate, like those three things, 
like cover over a multitude of snow sins. Yeah. Like just going slow in snow is like, I don't know, like, would you agree like 90% of like the battle there? Yo, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sliding on the road happens when your vehicle is moving faster than your tires can grip the road. So like your, your momentum is moving faster than the, uh, the friction of your tires can overcome. That's literally like what happens in a slide. So if you just don't ever go fast enough for you to hit that point, then you don't ever hit that point. And if you do happen to hit that point, you hit a weird spot where the, that, that, uh, whatever that velocity is that changes because the conditions change. Um, if you're not going that fast, then it's easy enough to compensate. And even if you can't compensate, if you're not going that fast and you hit a tree, it's not going to kill you. So I I think you're right. Like it's, it's not rocket science to, to be able to drive in the snow, like safely, you just take your time and don't be stupid. So yeah, if you live in a, if, I mean, this is like anyone who lives in an area that gets snow already knows this, but just take your time. You don't even have to have snow tires. Like I never have snow tires on my vehicles. I never get snow tires and it's because it's not that big of a deal. Um, some people live in dot, like they, they live by their snow tires. They absolutely have to have their snow tires. I've just never really seen a huge benefit in that. And that's because if you just go slow and you take your time, you really aren't going to run into the same kind of trouble that you would if you're going fast. So drive slow, arrive alive. That's all, all I've got to say about that. Listen, that was an amazing PSA. I feel like over the course of all these like 368 episodes, we've had like some incredible PSAs. It's true. Would you agree? Yeah, we need to get like uh, somebody Someone, who's yeah. good at like like uh, graphic engineering should do like a GI Joe style. The yeah. more you know, public service announcement for exactly. It, it's half the battle. So here's the amazing irony. By irony, I mean providence. So you were speaking about snow. You and I have had zero conversations about the course of this episode, except for its title, talking about new heaven, new earth. But my second affirmation is snow. Nice. <laughs> so, and actually like snow connected with winter. So I was thinking about this recently and I want to come at the listeners with a little bit of heat on this, which is ironic because I'm talking about snow. Bear with me for a second. My affirmation is basically how much I enjoy the seasons that God has given us in particularly winter. I think winter also like by its nature is like in a bear market. People like notoriously dislike winter. They talk about the disruption of the precipitation manifested in snow. They talk about how much they dislike the cold and that's so uncomfortable. And to me growing up in the Northeast, I realized almost only recently that so many or the majority of my pleasant memories are wrapped around the winter and about how there's like a purifying and like a crisp like effect of the cold, how there's something special about walking into the cold and feeling the uncomfortableness of the temperature, but also the silence that only occurs when the environment around you is decidedly cold. So I know that many of our listeners don't live in places where they experience great cold. So I'm saying, come enjoy the cold, come find and travel, find an excuse to go to a place and don't let anybody tell you that the cold is not enjoyable in its own right. It is beautiful and it is majestic and snow on the ground. Like there's, I've often thought about this and I have a particular image in mind, which I want to describe to you, but if you've ever seen a full moon reflected off a body of snow, 
you know there's something almost heavenly and glorious yeah. about that particular environment. It's just like unparalleled. So this may sound completely ridiculous, and that's okay. But I'm telling you that there's something beautiful about the way God has created the winter and the cold and the snow to accompany it, that it's worth exploring. So if you've never experienced before, or if you're in a place of the world where you do experience it, I may be asking that you see it with renewed eyes, that in the same way that we find fire purifying, I think actually cold is also purifying and there's something completely beautiful about it. So lean into it, try it if you've never experienced it. And if you do experience it regularly, don't take it for granted. Yeah. One of the most beautiful things that I think I ever see, and it's it's a blessing that I get to see it on a somewhat regular basis, is you know that like when you wake up in the morning after a heavy snowfall overnight. Okay. And everything is like even and covered in snow with no like no tarnishes. Yes. Like there's no footprints, there's no tire tracks. It's like a flat, even covering of snow. Like even the animals have not gotten out and disrupted this yet. That is one of the most beautiful sights that I think God has ever created in nature. And not to be overly theological, although that's kind of our jam. It's like overly theological might be my love language. Um, That's like a beautiful picture of the gospel. And there's a reason that the Bible talks about like pure, like maybe this isn't the Bible. Maybe this is like a different thing, but like the idea of like pure as the driven snow, like that's, that's a concept, right? White as snow. That's that's a concept that God has given us in nature that if you actually see it, you know exactly what you're talking about. One day, everything can be covered in dirt and gross and nasty. And then you have a hard, like a heavy snow overnight and it's beautiful and crisp and white. Yes. And it's like fresh and there's nothing, there's no tarnish, there's no blemish. It's just this beautiful, even covering of snow. That's one of the most beautiful sights that I think I see in nature. And I see it on a regular basis because of just the way we are. Like we live in the church. Literally, we live in the church. And so there's the church parking lot. So when we have a heavy snow, I can look out of my bedroom window in the morning and see this thick covering of snow even across the parking lot. And then the the neighbor's yard is large. I can see this even covering of snow over it. And in some ways, it's even kind of like an equalizer, like the hills and the different, yes. like the ridges, they they get covered over. And so like it it's right. even, it's it's just a really beautiful thing. So I I'm with you. I think I think sometimes people complain about the cold and the snow out of fatigue. And I I get that. Like I understand that. At the end of like a long, hard winter, you're like, I just wanna li- I just wanna not be covered in a bunch of layers when I want to leave my house. But there is also something really refreshing about just that like nice, crisp, cold air. And I think I th- I think I'm probably with you that a lot of my most fond memories growing up involve the winter season more than the summer season. Like I have more good memories of right. of things happening during the cold than I do in the heat of the summer. Yeah, like I'll, I'll give a quick example before we move on to our, our topic at hand. So I remember. I don't know how many years ago this is, but it it sticks in my memory as if it was so recent. Part of the beauty of the winter and the snow is that it disrupts in the most glorious way. It equalizes. There's a sense that when the winter comes, especially with this like precipitation that falls in the ground and accumulates, that you can't do anything with it except accept it at times, especially when it comes at you like hard and fast. I remember there was one Christmas, and this is not wrapped around in the holiday, but the fact that I remember that uh, my brother was uh, tasked with taking care of a local neighbor's uh, dogs. 
And normally we would drive to this person's house. It's not more than maybe, let's say, like a quarter or half a mile away. But because the weather was so inclement, the roads were absolutely impassable. And I remember my father, my brother, and I, we walked to this person's house in the middle of the street, carrying on, having such a great time, safe and secure and sound because the weather was so inclement that no cars could pass. It was as if like the world had stopped, like in this almost like post-apocalyptic kind of way. And then we found ourselves enjoying each other, enjoying God's creation, and enjoying the fact that everything else that was at once busy now had been steadied and stayed by the hand of God. So God uses weather in this amazing way to force us to come into doxology, into solemnness, into solitude, and to stop us. Like there's a little like a Shabbat in the snow. And maybe that's the reason why I enjoy it so much. It's like, it's, it's as if like the weather through God's command forces a Sabbath on any day that he desires. And we change the way in which we act with each other. We change the, our expectations for what we can accomplish. And we come back more to the center of what God has required for us. So I feel like snow is unique in that. And for our brothers and sisters who have never experienced it before, like I long for you to have that experience because it is beautiful. And I think it's, it transcends like, culture and where you grew up and geography it's not just like bias or penchant it's there's just something altogether beautiful about it yeah i have a really similar story like that actually i when i was in college it must have been the end of the fall semester right which usually like finals are taking place in college at in the fall semester they're taking place usually like the first or second week of december um, so it wasn't the first snowfall but i remember it was in the midst of studying for finals everybody was getting ready and there was this really heavy snowstorm. And I really remember this because I think it, it must have been my senior year. Yeah. Cause I'm, if I'm thinking about where I was living, I was living in senior housing and not like old people housing, like senior college student housing. Um, and I remember feeling frustrated because some of my friends were graduating after this, this semester. And I was, I was feeling like I wasn't getting a lot of time with them. And I understood like, we got to study, we got to do well. People are paying lots of money to come do this. I got all of that, but it was frustrating because I wanted to spend more time with my friends before they moved away. And it was this heavy snow. And I remember somebody came out into the hallway of the, the student housing. It wasn't quite a dorm. It was more like an apartment building and yelled, class is canceled tomorrow. <laughs> and and it was like, after that, it was like the year of Jubilee happened because everybody <laughs> stopped studying and we all came out into this common area. And I remember it was just this really beautiful, quiet time of just fellowship with each other. Like we we, sure. we had this like momentary pause because we knew class was canceled because of, we just, there was nothing we were going to be able to do. We got this momentary reprieve on our studies and it allowed us to just really enjoy each other's company. So I think, I think you're right. There is something, there's something to that theologically that, Snow does seem to be this strange way that God sometimes puts everything on hold. I sometimes I feel that same way about like a about a power outage where like everything kind of pauses and the world gets really quiet in a way that it usually doesn't. And I feel like a really heavy snowstorm kind of does the same thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I didn't intend for this, but I think that actually leads us in like a really lovely way into the topic on this episode. We're talking about a new heaven, new earth. This is the end of all things, the end of all time, but also the beginning of all things, the beginning of every time. Yeah. And there is, in some ways, the sense that eschatology, while we use that word to reference the end, is really just the beginning of all eternity. 
And it is like a recapitulation, a redefinition of all things such that there is, as we can just describe it here, like as if snow always persists, like this new kind of earth, this new kind of heaven in which there's a fullness of time and space and of human interaction and a blessedness in relationship with God. And as we wrap up, that's the best place to wrap up because while we can't understand it, as we talked about before, the Bible says explicitly that this is our future and we ought to try to process it and come to terms with the fact that this is what God has for us. So I'm really excited about this. A new heaven, a new earth. And I think that as we talked about, you you said before when we were talking about eschatology, we're trying to avoid in some ways, and this might trigger some people, like the, the meaningless, like all kind of debates and polemic language yeah. around this. Instead, come to the center of what God has for us in his kindness and his mercy and creating these things. Can we not celebrate and appreciate and look forward to those things? And that's the same way I think in which we're trying to con- contextualize like this concept in this conversation about new heaven and the new earth. Yeah. Yeah. So last week we talked about the second death and the judgment of both the apostate angels and those who are apart from Christ. And we kind of, we kind of like did the like Marvel trailer, Marvel teaser style thing at the end here. Last week was mostly about the fact that the second death is, although it's a punishment that the reprobate suffer in their bodies, it's still primarily a spiritual punishment in that right. the punishment is separation from God's gracious presence. And what we we kind of gave the teaser on is what I'm about to read here in, in chapter 21 of Revelation. Uh, and it starts out here in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the eternal punishment that the reprobates suffer in their bodies— but it's a spiritual punishment that they suffer in their bodies. And there's, there's a mystery to that. What exactly that means, we don't fully know. The, the picture of a lake of fire seems to imply certain things, but we don't fully understand what that would be like. Because even in this life, the reprobate are still not fully separated from God. He's still sustaining them. He's still expressing his common grace to them. They don't fully understand or know in this life what it means to be truly under the full wrath of God. He's holding that back for now. In the same way or or in a parallel way or in a a complementary way is probably a better way to say it, we don't fully understand or grasp what it means to be in God's presence in a favorable, gracious sense, right? He's, He's not holding that back in the same way that he's withholding his wrath from the reprobate, but we don't fully experience the full, gracious presence of God. And that's really what what the eternal blessed state is, right? This We could get into whole discussions. We could have done many more episodes on eschatology. We could have done an episode on the beatific vision and explored what that meant. We could right. have done... Uh, we could have done episodes on what it, what the new heaven is, is compared to the new earth. We could have done all that. But the the final state of man is to be with God and for God to be with man 
in this full unmediated sense. Right now right. we see, Paul says, we see as though through a glass dimly, right? We, we, only, we only subjectively experience a partial experience of God's gracious presence. That presence is truly here, right? The spirit is a down payment, but that down payment is also like the fullness of the final inheritance. We get God and we have God. And because of divine simplicity, we have all of God. It's not like God has only given us a portion of himself at this point. We have all of God. The, the whole Godhead indwells us in the spirit. But subjectively, we don't fully experience that. And, then, and there's a lot of reasons for that we won't get into. But the the blessing of the final state, the catechism says that we will enjoy, we will uh, be blessed in the full enjoyment of God for all eternity, right? That's what we're talking about in Revelation 21. And that's the converse, that's the exact, um, the exact converse of what the reprobates suffer, in that they experience the full absence of God's gracious presence. The elect will experience the full presence of God's gracious presence, the fullness of his presence. So that that's really what we want to try to unpack tonight. And all of the debate about like there there's some who would take objection to I don't know if you want to call it kind of like a Bavinkian, Bavinkian that's a new word that I just made up a Bavinkian uh, understanding. Some people will criticize Bavink because he almost has too too earthy of a conception of what the final He's state of Bavink. man will be, right? I get that like I understand that I think there are some who have too spiritual of a final state of man that don't don't understand the earthiness yes. of it. We could get into all of those debates, but I think the main point we need to land on is that whatever the final, I don't know, like structure or like arrangement of the new heavens and the new earth, whatever the like physical arrangement of those things are, the main blessing and the primary benefit that is there is that we enjoy God and we enjoy him fully and truly and immediately in wherever that is, that place is that we exist. Yeah. Like there's this sense that like the, the details are interesting, but maybe they, they in some ways like determine like the whole course of our conversation. Like they somehow become the neck that turns the head of all this talk that we have about the new heavens and the new earth where we'd be better served to understand like these first principles, which I think is what you're after. These prophecies, one of which you just read, are like descriptive of the state of blessedness, which will prevail universally and everlastingly in the new heaven and the new earth, following, which we, we didn't get into this, but like the destruction of Satan and his followers. Yeah. The conception of the new heaven and the new earth denotes this amazing renewal of God's creation and the fulfillment of the purpose for which God brought the created order into being. It's we're being bookended here. Yeah. Heaven and earth as a designation of the totality of creation is an echo of the opening words from the book of Genesis, where of course we're reading in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it should be noticed that like with what you're talking about, this glorious and eternal future that's envisaged includes the earth. It's not like, this weird, like ethereal or nebulous future that is promised by for God's people. It's like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yeah. And God did not make all things in order to wash them, just end in this like weird destruction and futility. And of course, as you said, that's why Paul speaks like very deliberately and explicitly of this like glorious liberty of God's children that we are all waiting with eager longing and not just us but like this almost like separate created order, the thing that is like unthinking in a way 
that will be set free from its bondage and decay and obtain this amazing separation, this amazing recapitulation, where as the children of God, everything is made new. So to me, there's like this transcendental sphere, if I can say it that way, where the Lord is praised as worthy to receive glory and honor and power on the ground that he is creator of all things. And that it was by his will that they're brought into the existence. And that existence is seeing its fullness, like its its purity, its undefiledness, its uh, like bought backness in this new heaven, new earth. And as like people, as I said at the start of the episode, who like are, have bodies and also have soul, like we need a place to chill. And God said, like, I have made that place. I'll bring that place back in its perfection. And we will commune together in perfection. In that place, there won't be death. There won't be sorrow. I'll wipe every tear from everyone's eye. And so, like, this is the amazing promise that God gives us. And it's like the fullness of what it means to be a human being. And God, in his great glory and his great mercy, his great provision for us, makes a way for this to happen in the same way that he made a way for us to be created from the beginning, that he gave Adam and Eve all of the gloriousness of the garden and put before them these particular acts and all of this, you know, these rules in which they might just demonstrate to them their obedience. All of this comes to, like you said, a, a total fruition in the new heaven, new earth, where it's like unimpeded by sin. And so I think we get like tossed aside by like, what does that really look like? And what way age are we? Like, those are all interesting things to think about. But at the end is this manifestation of the promise, like in the final analysis, is the joy of knowing that God will bring about this completeness in us and that we can vouchsafe our trust to him in doing that in a way yeah. that we know it's going to be amazing and perfect and super enjoyable and that our relationship will be like fulfilled and that we'll have a relationship with him in a way, as you said, that will be like unparalleled, unequaled, and unexperienced in the way that we know it right now. Yeah. The other element that I think um, often gets overlooked in these discussions is sort of the nature of God's people in the new heaven and the new earth, right? So there there definitely are some um, challenging passages in Revelation where, where it almost seems like God's people, there's almost still like, I don't have the I don't have the exact reference in front of me, but there's a passage where it seems to indicate that like there's a people outside of God's people, and I'll be honest, like I don't know exactly what to do with that. But when when the scripture talks about this, like for example, a lot of times people will stop uh, in verse in chapter twenty one with kind of where I've read, but they don't quite f- like finish the chapter. So I'm gonna start reading again here in verse nine. It says, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal. And then it goes on to describe this city. And and I have seen no, no shortage of people debating what this city is and what the different numbers represent and all of that stuff. Right. But the text tells us explicitly what the city is, right? The angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Well, we know that that's the church. Like we know that that's, that's God's people. It's, it's those who are united to the son by faith 
and it's not it's not being conceptualized here as the individual believers who are united to Christ. It's the corporate body of all of those who are united to Christ by faith. It's the church. And so when it says that the holy city Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, it's the church coming down out of heaven. Now, right. I don't I'm not I'm not um I deny that there's a such thing as a rapture. So there's a lot of dispensations who would say like, well, this proves the rapture because the church is brought up into heaven and then it's brought down. I don't think that's what the passage is saying here. And I don't think we need to get into all those details, but then it goes down to here. And in verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in the city, no temple within the church, right? The city is the church, no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine for for the glory of God gives it light and lamps the lamp is the lamb by its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it so this is this is one of those passages where it seems like we're in the eschaton we're in the last days all of God's all of God's enemies have been defeated so like who are the nations then that are going to come in this is a confusing passage i'm not going to get into it too much but this idea that not only is there this new place that's created, there's this new heaven and this new earth, but there's now this new new or renewed people of God that inhabit those places, right? Right. This is the this is the eternal state of man. It's not just fellowship with God. And that that may almost right. feel and sound blasphemous that like the last state of man, the last state of the elect is not just about fellowship with God. But it's about this renewed corporate people of God. It's about right relationship with God, right relationship with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. But it's also about a right, proper, restored relationship with those who are likewise united to Christ and therefore united to each other. Right? Even now, um, one of the best ways, I think, to conceptualize the, the church is to talk about, right, there's these concentric circles, right? There's the there's the invisible church, which is probably smaller than the visible church, right? So if you take any given local congregation that is of any significant size, right? Let's say 50 or more. And it's not that there couldn't be false converts or false believers in smaller churches, but it's harder to hide in a smaller church. So let's say a congregation of 50 or more. There is a good chance that not all of the 50 people who are members of that church, who are baptized members of those church that we would in some sense consider to be a Christian are not actually regenerate and are actually not the elect. In the last days, in this new heaven and new earth and in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, the church itself, those concentric circles, this variance between the visible and the invisible church, that, that difference disappears. So we now have this purified, rarefied church where all of the people within the church, all of the people within the visible church are actually members of the invisible church. This is part of, I think, what the Bible is talking about. There's a lot that talks about we will see him with our own eyes, right? We'll see Christ as he is. There's also this element that like, we will see the body of Christ, the church, as it actually is. So, right. so not only do we, see, do we see God truly, but now there's no more um, ambiguity within the church of who is and who isn't actually a believer, right? Everyone who is a member of the church, and this is why this is part of why I say it, is finishing that chapter, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, meaning the church or the city. None, right. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything who does 
what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So part of the blessing of the finality of things, part of the blessing of the last days of the eschaton, whatever we're going to call it, part of the blessing of that is things are what they appear to be. And perhaps even most acutely, things are what they appear to be in the church itself. Right now, the church, um, I'm not going to go like full Derek Webb and be like, well, the church is this dirty, nasty place. But in a certain sense, like the church is a place, the church, lowercase, like local church, the church right. is a place where like there's a lot of there's a lot of unholiness still present. It's mixed. Right. It's a mixed body. It won't be like that in the last days. And I think that's one of the primary blessings that we see in the scriptures that there is this, there is this pure, spotless bride, this city of God that is is not a mixed body anymore. And and we don't have any concept of what that is actually going to be like. Even even our own selves, our own persons, are kind of this microcosm of a mix, what it is to be a mixed body, right? Right. Uh, like my my anthropological makeup is still like a mixture of corruption and sanctification. That that glorification process is not complete. That also has implications for the whole church. And in the last day, right when we get to Revelation chapter twenty two, all of the language is is moving towards purity and uniformity and truth and like transparency. Everything is reflecting this idea that everything is what it actually appears to be. And what it appears to be is this beautiful, restored congregation who worships the Lord and sees him truly as he is. And that's that's really the hope of the gospel in terms of how the gospel moves towards eschatology, right? The gospel is not just about personal salvation, even though that's where we usually apply it, the gospel is about this utter transformation and restoration of all things, which involves the restoration and the transformation of the church to be this true, pure, spotless bride. Yeah, I would submit that it starts with the people and that the derivation is that because we are part of a people group, that our individuality is also included in that. So I think you're on the mark. And honestly, I, I can't tell if you're trying to trigger me right now because that's that's like exactly the thing that I get super stoked about. And we've jokingly talked about on this uh, you know, podcast like many times. So like I use this word or this, I don't know if it's a word, I think it's hyphenated, like this French phrase, like amuse-bouche, like a small savory item of food that's like served as an appetizer before the meal. So in other words, like it gives you like this introduction to like the great main course that's coming. And to your point, which you absolutely stole from me, and we probably would have been advantaged to talk about, was how in some ways, I meant to say this actually at the, at the top of the podcast, like like somehow like be like a trailer or a teaser, how like is it possible that what happens to us on the Lord's Day every Sunday is in fact some ways like the new heaven, new earth in like a microcosmic kind of way, in the same way that like you said, like we just pick like a particular organ of the body, like the mouth, how like the mouth both praises God and curses the brother, how, you know, Luther would say we're similar uses epicator, like that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. So like in this age, the gospel, like the power of the gospel, that kingdom reality that Christ gives to us, this blessedness that we're talking about, it is actually tasted within the fellowship of the redeemed as they press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. As we like set our gaze on the day of Jesus Christ, that great day when God will bring to completion the work that he's begun in us. Like that's Philippians like three, right? 
on that day, all God's covenant promises will be brought to the full in an everlasting fruition. But for now, in many ways, they happened on the Lord's day. Yes. And it's like not by accident that like God has said somehow, wouldn't it be great? Or I did want to call the people together and worship. And isn't it ironic and serendipitous that this also in some ways echoes what I intended and will happen forever when I bring about the new heavens and new earth. It's as if like, again, we're receiving every Lord's day, like the amuse-bouche, which like, I don't want to make like communion puns here because I feel like that would be inappropriate, but like that, that's all happening, right? Yeah. Like that's, we're tasting and we're seeing that God is good. That he's drawing people onto himself, that he saves the people, that he does all the verbs and that this is like resolute and immutable. And so in that way, what we're actually experiencing is the new heaven, new earth, but it is just a taste. Yeah. It is to know that it is a mix, that there are tares and wheat, but it doesn't remove the fact that in the first principle, God is showing us what it means to be together, to enjoy him forever, and to enjoy the company of the saints whom he has called and recreated as a family that's born not just of blood and flesh, but one that is super natural, that transcends what is the natural familial relation is something that's greater than we all could have achieved on our own, but is united in the head that is Christ. We have like, this is one of the things where we say, like, we don't need any more signs and symbols. We don't need to kind of ask God that he would do something that he's already done for us. He has made this manifest in our own time, in our own age, by calling us together and giving us a call to worship that draws us on the Lord's day. Yeah. So it is like remarkable. And again, even this is like, what, like one, one millionth of what it means to understand the new heaven and new earth. But it's enough that God says, like, you can see it, right? Like, by the power of my spirit, you can see it. You can experience it. You you know that while this is incomplete, it points toward a completeness. And you ought to celebrate then in participating in that incomplete act of the Lord's Day, knowing that it points you toward the completeness that is yet to come. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to read something out of Hebrews here that I think— um probably at first blush doesn't seem applicable. So it's going to take a little bit of unpacking here and it's now 50 minutes into our 60 minute podcast. And, and so I won't be able to unpack it as much as I'd like, but starting in chapter 10 here, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I, I did a little bit of a study on this passage for an article I wrote a while ago, trying to sort of understand the point of that article was to understand why it is that um, the Lord changed the Sabbath to the seventh day, uh, sorry, to the first day in the Christian church when it was the seventh day in the Old Testament church, in the Old Covenant church. And there's a couple linguistic features of this this verse that we don't necessarily see in the English that that makes it really clear to me. And, and I don't want to go into all of the like exegetical foundation for this, but in verse 25, and this is a passage that's super familiar to all of us, right? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of somebody encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The English right. obscures this, that the the word that's talked about here, which is not neglecting to meet together, is not neglecting the assembly, 
right? It gets translated right. like as this weird verbal process, but it's actually a noun. The only other place that this is used is a spot in one of the letters to the Thessalonians. I don't have the reference in front of me. And it's clearly an eschatological, like it's clearly an eschatological concept that is, right. is being brought exactly. forward. And in Thessalonians, it's like the gathering that's being talked about is the gathering of all of God's people in the last day. It's it's what we're talking about in Revelation 21, right? It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's the culmination of all of God's work among his people to form and create this people. That's the gathering that's being referred to in first in one of the letters to Thessalonians. That's the same gathering here, the same gathering that the letter to Hebrews is saying not to neglect right? So we use this verse to say, like, make sure you're a member of a local church. And that's a totally legitimate use of this verse. For sure. But it's because the local church, the the, the gathered people of God is this foretaste of the eschaton, right? So do not neglect to meet together. Do not neglect the assembly of God's people, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we gather together on the Lord's day in this sort of like sneak peek of the eschatological church, this sneak peek of like the final culmination of all of God's redemptive work. We gather together every Lord's day as this trailer or teaser for what God is going to do in the last day. And the reason we do that and the reason we are motivated to do that is all the more as we see that day coming to fruition, as we see that day drawing near. So we look forward to what's going to happen and what's described in Revelation 21 and 22. We look forward to that in terms of like we anticipate it in this in this anxious, positive anticipation. We can't wait for that day to come. But the best way, this is maybe a little preachy and I'm, I guess I'm okay with that. The best way that we do that and what the Bible tells us to do to show each other and God that we are are anxious for that day to come is to dive into the Lord's day. So like right now it is 7:41 PM on a Saturday evening that Jesse and I are recording this to be honest with you. Like I am so stoked to go to sleep because I can't wait to get up and go to church tomorrow morning. I can't wait to get up and go assemble with the saints tomorrow morning and to not neglect that assembly as we see the day drawing near. So like when you, when you struggle, I'm just going to try to maybe put a little bit of shoe leather on this. When you struggle to get up on a Sunday morning and we've all been there, like this isn't me judging you for this. I've been there. I will be there again where you get up on Sunday morning and maybe you had a bad night of sleep. Maybe you had a great night of sleep and you just don't want to do it. You struggle to feel like you want to go to the Lord's assembly. This is the way that we anticipate the Lord's coming. So when right. in in the end of Revelation, right, the last chapter of Revelation, it says, Behold, I'm coming soon. It says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. The way that we most clearly make that proclamation, the way we most clearly pray that prayer, come, Lord Jesus, amen, come, Lord Jesus, is when we faithfully attend to the means of grace on the Lord's day. That's what we have in front of us. And this is the beauty of it. Although it's an impartial, subjective experience of what it is that God has for us, like we don't experience the fullness. It's not that we don't possess the fullness. We just don't subjectively experience it. So this is this is a weird thing to get your head around. But 
what we have on the Lord's day. And I, I agree with you. I think especially in the Lord's supper, especially right. in the Lord's supper, right. what we have on the Lord's day is not substantively different than what we will have in eternity. It's just our experience of it is impar- is partial right now. We only see through that glass dimly. But what we're seeing and what we're experiencing is what we will experience for all eternity. And that's a unique thing that we have on the Lord's Day. And I, I'm like super excited about this. Like, let's shut the podcast off now because I want to go to sleep <laughs> and I want to get up and go to church in the morning. I just, I don't know. I This is like the Kool-Aid man moment for me. Like, I'm ready to just run through the wall. Like, with my God, I can leap over a wall. Yeah, or run through one. I mean, this is the, I think, appropriate way to continue on with our new conversations that we'll have next episode, but also respecting that God has led us by his grace through all kinds of lovely conversations about who he is and what it means to follow him and to worship him. And in the end, it really is a matter of worshiping him properly. And what we find, I think, is that all of this leads us to almost like click, drag, and drop, like the future into the present with respect to appreciating, participating, and worshiping on the Lord's Day, but also this sense that he gives us his means and these markers, these means of grace that we might enjoy him now as we will enjoy him forever, but in a new and more magnified kind of way, but not dislocated from the way in which we enjoy him now. So all of these things point us to the fact that God is intimately involved with us, that he does find his domicile in a certain way with us now. It's John 1 that he comes and tabernacles among us. And we long for the day when we might tabernacle with him in complete fullness, like unencumbered, un- in an unreserved kind of way. So to me, that's what eschatology is all about. Of course, like people will debate. People will spill lots of ink over what it means to understand and interpret revelation. In the final analysis, it's about receiving this fullness of the gospel in a way, again, that is like unreserved. There's no more hurdles. And we can receive the blessedness of this universal prevalence and everlasting continuous continuousness of who God is and his relationship with his people. So to me, in the end, pun intended, that's what we ought to be about as we think about it now. So hopefully we've done it justice. And as we talked about it, again, there's a lot of details, but sometimes the details bring more heat than light. So I like the way that we approach this because I'm sure some will say, you didn't talk about this thing, or you didn't talk about locusts, or you didn't talk about helicopters. (laughs) And I suppose that's fair in a way. However, what we ought to be about is understanding the way in which God has given us now to appreciate and to taste this blessedness. And really that's about what happens to you, at least if we record this on the morrow. So this is like another, I mean, you and I are like pro Lord's day as like the young people say a hundred percent. Is that what the young people say these days? I don't, I don't know. feels like I, I hear people saying like all the time, like a hundred percent or like, a thousand percent, which like really offends my mathematical sensibilities and statistical <laughs> sensibilities, but I'm willing to let that go because I understand what we're conveying is I am all in on that yes. idea. And yeah. I'm all in on saying like, I think what you've just said really well is that when we are challenged with participating, when we're challenged with letting our feelings have hegemony over what we know, that really what we ought to do is cast a keen gaze into the future 
and see that what we do on the Lord's Day is what we'll do forever. That's what informs and gives value to the Lord's Day. And so by nature of that, it changes how we understand it. And so hopefully we'll have a greater spring in our step as we walk into the doors of the place in which we gather together with the Lord's saints to worship him. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good a place for us to wrap up this whole, not just this episode, but this whole hundred plus series, hundred plus episode series on systematic theology. It's been sure. quite a ride, I think. But, um, you know, we, we normally, this is like the part of the episode where we talk about Patreon. We talk about the Telegram chat. Like if you've been with us for 110 plus episodes or 360 plus episodes, you know, all that stuff. We'll say it again next week. But Jesse, until next week, and who knows what we're going to talk about next week. I certainly don't. <laughs> you don't know. We don't know. If don't you, know. One, one thing I will say before we wrap up, uh, we would love if Here you join go. the Telegram chat, Telegram, uh, Reform Brotherhood, uh, sorry, t.me slash Reform Brotherhood, mostly because we need ideas about what to talk about next. We don't know what we're yeah. going to talk about next. We really don't. Um, it might be a book. It might be a, a section of the Bible. It might be something random. We don't know. Sometimes we roll a dice and pick a catechism question. Uh, it's been two years since we've had to do that. So we're a little out of, out of uh, shape on that. Practice. So join our Telegram chat. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. But Jesse, until next week, and who knows what that means, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>